All right. Uh, welcome back. It's Pastor Lars here from Lord of Grace here in Marana, Arizona. Uh, welcome back to my little Thursday live streams that I'm doing. This is the first in a maybe probably say a fairly small series that I'm doing. I'm just calling it Things Jesus Didn't Say. Uh, and I thought I'd just look at some of these, uh, yeah, just look at some things that maybe people think Jesus said, uh, but maybe aren't in the scriptures in the same way. Uh, maybe clear it up. I'm going to probably lean a little bit more uh, on my own experiences again with this. Uh, there's lots of good Bible studies and stuff you can get out there. This one, uh, well, actually, and let me just give you one other note. Um, thanks for hanging in. Last week, I actually came down with COVID myself, so that's why there wasn't any live stream last week. I'm much better now, and um, it, it was pretty rough. I had fevers off and on for three days. I can't imagine what I would have gone through had I not been uh, vaccinated. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have made it, but it was, it was pretty rough, and it was rough having gotten all the vaccines. So get your vaccines. I will shamelessly tell that. I know that after I got my vaccine, I've been checking the operating system, the new Windows operating system that Bill Gates installed with the microchip. Um, occasionally, I have to reboot it so that I can make sure that he tracks me uh, correctly. Um, but... Uh, but, you know, then you get in the shower, you got to worry, you know, is it going to hurt the microchip? Is it going to get wet? So, um, but I've, I've gotten used to my, my, my Bill Gates microchip and, um, and uh, being a proud sheeple that I am. Uh, so anyways, uh, all that aside, uh, let's get started today. Today we're going to look at uh, the topic of hell and uh, the, the phrase, you are going to hell. And, and I just picked this one because it's an interesting thing. The number of like, you know, billboards and signs, the number of people who say that phrase, who will actually just flat out look people straight in the eye and tell them that. But yet you go back into the Gospels. Did Jesus ever tell anyone straight out, you are going to hell? And so I went through the whole Gospels and of course there is no place where Jesus says that directly to anyone in so many words. Uh, there's not uh, anywhere where he just looks at someone straight out and says, you're going to hell. He doesn't tell the sinners and tax collectors they are going to hell. He doesn't tell Pilate, who's actually ordering to kill him, that he's going to hell. He doesn't tell King Herod, who also uh, is in on executing him, he's, that he's going to hell. He doesn't tell the Roman soldiers who run around killing people that they are going to hell. Um, at some point, you got to wonder, I mean, like, how bad do you have to be before Jesus would tell you to go to hell? Uh, he doesn't tell Barabbas to go to hell, and he was a murderer. He doesn't tell the unrepentant thief, right? He's on the cross, and he's dying, and one thief, said, you know, one thief, right, is making fun of him, and the other thief says, hey, shut up. We're getting what we deserve, and Jesus looks at the good, the good thief and says, well, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. He doesn't look at the other one and go, and you schmuck are going to burn, so deal with it. Um, he doesn't ever say that. So I sit back and I just ask a question. And I think it's a good way to sometimes to get a grasp on faith is to just ask yourself, what didn't Jesus say? What isn't in the text? Why not? Sometimes it can get wildly speculative, right? We're having to guess why it's not in there. But I look at this and think, okay, if, if we really do believe that there is a literal place called hell, it is an actual, physical, literal place, 
And when you die, your soul is removed from your body and transported to this place where a guy named the devil sits there with tights and a pitchfork and lots of fire, and he pokes you and punishes you for all eternity. If we believe that that is where everyone is headed who isn't a believer in Jesus, if that's what we believe, then we really need to be warning people. And it makes sense, as obnoxious as it looks, when you watch people out there with their big signs waving, you know, you're going to hell for this, that, or the other thing. Uh, if you get inside their worldview, okay, it makes a little bit more sense. I mean, because this is serious stuff, right? So then I sit back and I ask myself, okay, if Jesus believed that there was a literal place called hell with eternal punishment where a disembodied soul went after death, what, where's all the warnings? Why isn't Jesus sitting there in the Gospels over and over telling people, you know, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you better watch out or you're going to go to hell. Why is you're going to hell not like first and foremost his biggest warning? I mean, why even bother with prodigal sons and good Samaritans and, and uh, you know, talking about uh, the kingdom of gods like a pearl or, uh, you know, why even worry about all that stuff? Essentially, it, it, all, it really is kind of not that relevant if people are going to hell. Because this is big deal. If it, and if it really is the big deal that said, why didn't Jesus make that front and center his big deal? In fact, why does he not even warn anybody directly in so many words that they are going to hell? And all I can think is, uh, is it possible that Jesus' understanding of things is not exactly that understanding of a sort of a literal eternal place? Now, I'm not, uh, I don't, not going to spend the time today going through like every passage that is considered a reference to hell in the Gospels and in the New Testament. People have done that in books. Uh, and it would take a lot more time to unpack. I'll be giving you little bits and pieces. Uh, my friend Stuart McDonald, Pastor Stuart McDonald, just did a class, and we have them still on our uh, Facebook and YouTube, called the S Course, Sin, Salvation, Satan, Sanctification. He has laid it out in nice PowerPoints and gives you some of the history of where uh, hell and Satan beliefs came from. But I'm just, so I'm just gonna kind of dabble in just give it a little bit of the scriptures, but focus more on this question of why didn't Jesus say that? And again, I'm concluding because he didn't, con he didn't conceive of hell the way modern people do, and B, uh, because it just wasn't as important to him in the sense that I think it is to some modern, particularly fundamentalist-oriented Christians, and why not? I got a couple theories on this. One is without a literal eternal hell, there's no sense of cosmic justice, right? The bad guys get away with it, essentially. Because we all know in this world, yes, there are some bad guys who suffer for it, but there's plenty of bad guys who die of natural causes. There are plenty of murderers who are never caught, right? Um, I, you know, I can't quote off the top of my head the percentage of murders that don't get solved, but there's actually a lot of them that don't get solved. Um, there's a lot of bloody dictators who massacred whole cities 
who died comfortably in their palaces, surrounded by wealth and, wealth and family, dying of natural causes. There was no sort of cosmic karma that happened to them. Um, Joseph Stalin did not get blown up in a bunker. He just died of old age. Mao Zedong killed, I don't know, 70 million people. He just died of old age. You know, I, I could go on listing all these horrible murderers that nothing bad happened to him. So, the doctrine of hell provides us with some sort of cosmic consolation. The bad guys get their due. They might get away with it today, but they'll get their due. And uh, so I think that's the first thing. It, 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 it provides a sense of justice. If God is really just, then there has to be some sort of punishment in the end. Um, a, story, a story I like to tell I went to seminary out in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and they've got, you know, it's an old, old town, and they've got those kind of brick row houses with kind of the basement stores. You go, kind of go down from the sidewalk, and they're long. And this woman had this antique store, and it was, it just, it went way back, and you could tell once upon a time it was an apartment, and so there were walls. You kind of had to zigzag through it. Well, there was no way one person could see the back of the store from the front. Uh, you just couldn't. And it was kind of a joke in town that people would go into her store in twos and threes, and one person would go in the front and grab some random object and try to haggle with her, while the others would sit and stuff things into their bags in the back. And so someone came up to her at one point uh, and asked her, uh, doesn't this bother you that they're stuffing all this, they're taking your stuff? And she said, well, I'm not too worried about it because they're going to go to hell. And then she would just kind of get this little smile on her face, like, let them steal, let, let, let them have antiques, they will burn in hell. And I'm like, you know, you could install a camera, maybe. I mean, it was the 90s, but they did exist. Um, and, uh, but so convinced of that sense of hell. So it provides a sense of justice. I also think for some Christians, they worry that without a hell, it doesn't provide an urgency or a need for Jesus in our modern secular world, you know, all these people sort of smugly secular, like, I don't need God, I don't need religion, I enjoy sleeping, I don't need that stuff, it's all myths, I can be a good person anyways. And, and then you look at their lives, and because it's America, and you know, a lot of people make good money, and so they're living a good life, having a good money, so I don't need no Jesus, I don't need no religion. Um, and then, but that doctrine of hell, it solves that problem, doesn't it? It says, well, you may think you got it good now. You just wait and see, right? It, you just wait and see. It provides an urgency, right? You need to think about this. Um, without that, you know, what's the urgency? Uh, I would argue there's a lot to being a follower of Jesus other than avoiding hell. And that question is, but it does put it in a very simple, concrete way that's a lot easier to understand than to say, follow Jesus and you'll have a different quality of life. Um, you'll be able to experience the holy or follow in discipleship or change the world or those kind of things all are, I think, a little bit more fuzzy than the simply the either or of hell. Um, but I also think, and this is kind of the third one, that the doctrine of hell explains Jesus's death on the cross. Uh, and this is very important for a lot of Christians. Uh, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Uh, and if, if, in fact, there is a literal eternal hell, uh, then you've got to have a way to get people out of it, right? 
Uh, and so now you start getting into this sort of uh, what they call atonement theory. And the basic gist of atonement theory goes that humanity is sinful since Adam, since Adam ate that first apple, humanity's been sinful. It's like baked into our DNA almost. We're always sinful. And because we're sinful, God is angry. God is full of wrath. God looks down, sees all that sinning, and gets mad. And what's he going to do in his wrath? I'm going to kill them all. And, then, and, and, and how's he going to kill them all? And send them all to hell, right? Because you all sinned, you're all going to hell. And so that's how the theory goes, right? And then somebody has to step in and say, wait, 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 don't kill them all. And so classical Christian atonement theory goes something like this. God sees the sinning and gets full of wrath and then says, a pr somebody must pay for all this sin. You know, a price must be paid. And then, I, and then God goes, I'm going to send them all to hell. And Jesus jumps in and goes, no, daddy, don't kill them all. Kill me instead. And so God goes, all right. And then kills Jesus and pounds all that wrath. And then gets done and goes, oh, good. Now that I killed my son and made him suffer really bad, now I don't feel so bad anymore. My wrath is gone. Um, is that really what we believe? I mean, honestly, is that really what we believe? I, I used to struggle with this notion. I used to struggle with this notion. First of all, biblically, I, I, I look back on like even the story of Noah. I don't take the Noah story terribly literally, but theologically, what's the lesson of it, right? He, God's going to wipe out the whole earth, but then he says at the end, he puts up a rainbow and says, I'm never again going to wipe out the whole earth. So God's already said, I'm not going to kill them all. And then you can keep going through the Old Testament. Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant. All who follow in my ways and are right, you know, will be my people. Uh, so in more than one place, in the, throughout the Old Testament, God makes it really clear. Follow me and you're good. There's nothing in there that says, follow me, but remember, you're still going to go to hell because of this wrath problem. Uh, that God is just inherently angry and just can't possibly just forgive people for asking, which I know is what I think most of us probably believe deep down. I did something wrong, you know, I, I don't know, I stole something. I went to God, I asked for forgiveness. God's loving and forgiving, God forgives me. Boom. But that isn't how atonement theory works. Atonement theory says you stole something, you feel bad about it, all right? So you ask for forgiveness, and because you believe that Jesus intervened and took the punishment for you, then there's forgiveness. So being saved is not just believing that Jesus is the Messiah and that he loves you. It's believing that Jesus is the Messiah and he loves you, and he suffered a sufficient enough punishment to pay off the wrath. Kind of like Kind of like an example that, that helped me make sense. This vision of God is kind of mobsterish. I call it the mobster kind of view of God. Or maybe we're, we're Southern Arizona. Let's kind of use the example of a cartel, right? You're a cartel boss. You got all these people under you, all these dealers and lieutenants, and all. You got this whole organization under you, and you're you're the top of whatever cartel, right? And how do you rule? Well, you rule with fear, right? People don't do what you say; they get punished. And what happens if your little foot soldier out there doesn't do what you say? Well, he knows he could well get killed, right? So imagine then 
And this actually happens. There's these people who go around and they rip off cartels. They're called rip crews. I think they're the craziest, insanest people in the world um, because they're, what they do for a living is they ambush the cartel's drug traffickers and steal their drugs and money. So they steal from cartels. Now, what do you think an El Chapo is going to do when he finds out that you and your buddies have been stealing his stuff? Well, he's going to get full of wrath, right? You transgressed the boss. He is full of wrath. Can he just forgive you? Even if he catches you and you get on your hands and knees and the rip crew says, I'm sorry, Chapo, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, I won't do it again. By the laws of the street, can he forgive those people who ripped him off? And the answer, of course, is no. A price must be paid. Otherwise, people won't fear him. Otherwise, they'll think he's weak. Otherwise, they'll think his commands are a joke. And they'll laugh at him. He'll lose control. And, of course, it goes against his sense of honor, right? When you're powerful, you have a sense of honor. When somebody uh, goes and, and deliberately flaunts your rules, that's, that's a, there's a sort of dishonor there, right? So there's no way. There's no way Chapo could forgive those guys. What would probably happen if you're a rip crew and you get caught is they'll, you know, I mean, they'll do what cartels do. They'll, they'll kill you and string you up and chop you up. And I mean, they do all sorts of things, right? They'll hang your headless body from the freeway. Uh, they're pretty brutal, but, a pri but the idea is a price must be paid because the wrath cannot, must be satisfied somehow. You can't just forgive. That goes against the rules of things. So to understand how classical atonement theory works, you have to look at it in terms of, you have to look at God kind of like the mob boss who is powerful and is to be an authority, to be feared and respected, who gives laws and rules and has expectations. And when people just go around willy-nilly violating the rules because they don't care, doing what feels good to them, I ain't listening to you, God, I don't care what you say in your little book, that instills wrath. God, and, and, and God can't just say you are forgiven. According to atonement theory, a price must be paid, and the price must be equal to the, to the wrath. It must be a big price. Right? So that's where Jesus comes in and says, uh, take me, kill me, and then God's wrath is satisfied. Is that really what we believe? I mean, honestly, is that really what we believe? I, I, I used to sit... Excuse me. I used to sit back when I was in seminary, and this would actually, it would literally keep me up at nights. Okay, I'm a, I'm a religion nerd, but it would keep me up at nights just sitting there, kind of going through it in my head, you know, trying to understand this question of how did the cross lead to forgiveness of sins? And I couldn't quite grasp the exchange. I even went and took a whole class on atonement theory to finally start to grasp this. And when I, it finally all fell into place and I added it all up, it really left a bad taste in my mouth. Um, and it really left me thinking, is this, is this really what I believe? I mean, is this really what I'm going to teach? You know, that the, the God who can create the universe, 
who has the ability to make black holes and quasars and all this kind of stuff, can't possibly find it within himself to forgive repentant people who change their ways. You can't just do it without somebody suffering first. And, uh, and, I, and, of course, I started going through the class and I discovered that there's lots of different ways of understanding how Jesus died, what he died for, what that purpose was, what it meant, and I actually discovered that there's a lot of ways of looking at it that are very old, too. It isn't like it's just some newfangled liberal Protestant thing uh, where they just want to water down the cross because they're embarrassed by talking about sin. Um, actually, if you look at a lot of those, and, and this will probably be good, good for um, future live streams or Bible studies, but uh, for example, the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't do this kind of atonement stuff at all. There's many different ways of looking at it. But anyways, so I sat down. And I used to stew over this, and it literally kept me up at night. Uh, you know, this whole wrath and punishment and paying a price. And, and, um, and so then, it, but it comes back to, it comes back to, in a sense, having a hell justifies all of it, right? It makes it necessary. Jesus didn't just die for nothing. He died for our sins, and that phrase does appear in the New Testament, uh, not in the Gospels. That's an interesting thing. That will maybe be a future thing. Jesus himself never says, I come to die for your sins. Uh, he doesn't use that kind of language. He says it's necessary that the Son of Man die, um, but he doesn't say, use that for your sins thing. That starts creeping in with Paul, and it gets a lot more by the time you get to the end of the Bible. But it's by no means the only way to look at it. Um, so, if in fact you're going to hell is this huge thing, why doesn't, and it's so important, and it's the big reason why Jesus lived and died and suffered, why does he not talk more about it? And I'm going to make an argument today uh, based on scripture that Jesus didn't conceive of a literal hell with a disembodied soul, that Jesus was acting more like an Old Testament prophet, this is my little bit of my hobby horse here, that he was more of an Old Testament prophet warning about God's judgment, but that God's judgment was a lot more earthly. So let's whip out your Bibles, New Revised Standard Version. We're going to jump to the book of Amos. We'll throw this on the screen. Amos 2. Amos 2. I love quoting Amos because he's, he, he, he's hardcore. All right. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But they have been led astray by the same lies after which their ancestors walked. So I will send a fire on Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way 
father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of God, they drink wine bought with fines they imposed. Boom. Okay. This is Amos, right? Um, for three transgressions and for four is an interesting... Uh, it, it, it's, you know, he's speaking in poetic language. But what's going on here? He, this is a prophet who has come. He's in the northern kingdom. When, when you read Israel here, it isn't the whole country. It's the northern kingdom. At this point, the, Israel, it was split. There was a northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. So there's a prophecy against both of them. Judah's going to get rained down fire. Yeah, pretty bad. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is also going to get it. What are their crimes? This is the interesting thing again. What are their crimes? Is the crime being a smug atheist and making stand-up comedy routines like Ricky Gervais? Although the guy is such a smart ass. The guy is a smart ass. He's probably asking for it. But um, he's clearly not afraid, right? But anyways, what's he going after? What are the crime? Uh, selling the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Uh, this is debt slavery is what it is. Uh, I talk about this over and over, but essentially it's a form of predatory lending. You're poor, you have no shoes, you have no money, you're walking around on hard dirt, you've got to get shoes. So the rich guy says, sure, I'll, I'll get you shoes, shoes but you've you got to get it on credit. Well, how much is a credit going to be? And then he charges some insane exorbitant interest that is no way for the person could possibly ever pay for, but otherwise you walk around and your feet bleed out, so I guess i got to do it. So he takes the sandals with exorbitant interest. Then he is unable to pay back that interest, and the rich guy goes, well, I guess you'll just have to work it off in slavery to me. And so then little by little through predatory lending, these rich guys would build up huge plantations of slaves. They would essentially find, use debt as a tool to enslave their own people. So the prophet is mad about that, right? And what else do they do? They trample the poor into the earth so that you get this sense of sort of them walking around town, literally stepping on poor people, kicking them out of the way. Then you get this, then of course it shifts to sort of the sexual sin, right? Father and son are sharing the same woman. Uh, the Lord is not impressed. Then, of course, they go down to every altar, so they're worshiping all these idols. But they, all this stuff they're doing, and what does Amos say is going to happen to them? Yeah, God's going to rain down fire on them. And they're going to get invaded, and they're going to get enslaved, and there's going to be burning and raping and plundering and pillaging, and it's going to be ugly. So his job as the prophet is to warn the people of an impending judgment. God has made a judgment. So it's not like this is a judgment-free, do whatever you want, you know, just be a good person kind of stuff. There clearly is a judgment. But the judgment, there's nothing in Amos about, and for three sins of Judah and for four, I will remove their souls and send it to a different plane of existence where a, a personified evil deity who goes by the name of the devil will sit and torture the people of Israel for eternity for what they have done. He doesn't say that. The judgment is in this world. It's a this-worldly judgment. And history would show that, in fact, yes, the Assyrian army would march through northern it would, the kingdom, and it was murder, death, and blood, and killing, and hauled off into slavery. It was every bit as bad as the prophet had warned. So there was a judgment. So God's not a God without judgment, but the judgment was this-worldly. And the crime was not uh, what they did or didn't believe. 
Uh, and the crime wasn't particularly involved with whether they did or didn't practice rituals. It was involved with uh, how they treated the poor, how they treated their bodies, and whether they worshipped other gods, right? Laying down at all these other altars. Okay, <clears throat> to give you a sense, this is how the prophetic voice works, right? Speaking out for the poor, the enslaved, the needy, speaking that judgment to the rich and powerful. And uh, so, now, what does this have to do with Jesus? All right, let's go to Jesus, Mark 13. Uh, Mark 13 is often called, well, there's a version of it in Luke too, uh, sort of the Jesus' apocalypse. He, where he goes on a big, Jesus goes on a big rant, and he basically tells people of all this impending doom and destruction. It's not a passage that you know, mainline Christians like to spend a lot of time preaching on. Uh, and I think that's because when we look at it, we're looking at it a little bit the wrong way. So let's read this for a sec. Mark 13. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes, there will be famines, but this is the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware. They will hand you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. So what's gonna happen? Here we go again. Judgment, wrath, earthquakes, uh, lo getting locked up, beatings. Is there anything in there about hell? Anything in there about hell? Any Satan? Any eternal torment? Any level one, two, or three? Where's the devil Tiamat? Where, where's she? What about Beelzebul and his big fuzzy eyes, you know? No. Jesus is warning of judgment, but there's no talk of hell. Interesting. It's all talk about earthly stuff. Uh, Scholars tend to think that what Jesus is really talking about is the impending destruction of the temple that's going to come uh, when the Jewish people try to rise up against Rome. And historically, that did happen. Let's keep looking at Mark 13. Let's jump to uh, verse 11. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Wow. Um, you know, this kind of gives me the sort of chilling uh, flashbacks of the Khmer Rouge where children were put in charge of the adults because they were seen as less corrupted by bourgeois values, right? And so you have these images of little kids and 10-year-olds beating 50-year-olds, adults, because you're, you're too bourgeois and capitalist. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these kind of ideas of people rising up against their kids, uh, this is the kind of stuff that happens in rebellions and in authoritarian states and stuff. Um, and who will be saved? Those who endure to the end. To the end of what? to the end of the wars and all this stuff that's going to happen in this life, in this world, today, in this plane of existence. And what does it mean to be saved? To be saved means you survive living through it. In this particular passage, that's what it means. There's no talk about hell, Satan, or souls. Interesting. So it isn't like Jesus doesn't believe in judgment, right? Jesus is being a prophet. 
Jesus is being an Old Testament prophet, and he's warning the people of impending judgment. So let me throw up my next, my, my big fancy schmancy graphic here. This is where we, this is where so much error uh, happens in understanding Jesus and the issue of judgment, because we go into the Gospels and we read Jesus's warnings about judgment, which are prophetic warnings, like what a prophet would give, and we mistake those warnings about a impending judgment or a final judgment for an eternal punishment of the soul in a separate plane called hell. Jesus is warning about the first, not about the second. And that's a huge difference. It's a huge difference, you know? Um, and, and often when they'll go back, people will go back and want to make an argument that Jesus is warning people about hell. They quote the passages that really have to deal with judgment, an earthly judgment. Um, and that's very consistent with the whole Old Testament. All those 39 books, there isn't, nobody ever gets an eternal soul punishment. God, God, punish, God does the punishing, and God does it in this world. And yes, Job and many others will ask the question, Ecclesiastes will ask this question, why does it seem like the good people suffer and the bad get away with it, right? We all ask that question. Hell solves that problem. Well, they only look like they get away with it. But if there isn't an eternal hell, and there isn't a devil figure, a literal personified devil figure running around poking people, then we have to accept that the judgment is coming from God. That it's God who does, who, it's God who gives the, the, the sun and the clouds. That it is God who brings the joy and the pain. And then we gotta look back on ourselves and saying, what am I doing? What am I doing with myself? But that's what Jesus is warning of, which is why when he runs into sinners and tax collectors, or even Pilate and crew, um, he is, there isn't this huge concern about warning them about an eternal soul punishment. The warning is what's gonna happen in this world. Do I believe that, G that G Jesus didn't believe in an afterlife? No, absolutely not. There absolutely will be a resurrection. Uh, and he says that over and over and over. But a resurrection isn't the same thing as heaven. And I'm gonna get, I'm gonna keep walking out on the ice here. Um, in a final judgment, God comes down, bad things happen. Some die, some live and move on. That's how a final judgment works. Uh, go into Revelation, dig through the book of Revelation. Uh, you will not find a soul division, you will find a final judgment. Bad things happen. Some will die, and that's just it. They just die. Boom. And then others are raised to a new life in this new Jerusalem, in the new Garden of Eden. That's what being saved is. It's a final judgment that he's being warned about. Now, I'm, I, and now I know somebody's going to say, but Lars, I just opened up my Gospels, and Jesus talks about hell right there. So let me give you a couple of them without going too long, um, and show that, in fact, uh, it's not a, a, a separate plane of existence he's talking about. Let's go to Matthew 5. I'm just going to pick a couple, again, for the sake of time. Um, I'm probably already going long. Whatever. Matthew 5, starting at verse 21. So Jesus is speaking here. He says, You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, 
you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Okay. The, the, this is all going to boil down to what that one word in verse 22 says. If you say you're a fool, you'll be liable to the something of fire. That word is translated hell. Drives me nuts. I wish they didn't even try to translate it because sometimes when you translate, the words you translate it into comes with a package of meaning that doesn't exist in the previous word, in the, in the other language. Um, and hell is one of those words that for us is jam-packed full of images of Dante's Inferno and Hollywood movies and all this kind of stuff. Um, and that's why I wish they wouldn't use hell. Because the literal word that Jesus is saying here is Gehenna. And Gehenna is an actual place. It's a valley. It's, it's a little bit south of Jerusalem. It was the garbage dump. It's where they threw their garbage. That's it. It's a garbage dump. And it used to catch fire a lot. So it was always kind of perpetually smoky and perpetually burning, this kind of low-grade fire. And it smelled something awful. It's where the Romans would throw executed criminals. So what should have happened to Jesus according to normal standard Pontius Pilate operating policy was Jesus was crucified, they took him down, they chucked his body in Gehenna. And then the dogs and whatever would eat while his body slowly burns and it would be disgraceful and shameful to be thrown into a garbage dump. That's what Gehenna is. It's a garbage dump. The, the valley is still there. You can go visit it. It's not a garbage dump anymore. Things have, you know, the landscape's changed. But that's all he's saying. He says, if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the fire of Gehenna the garbage dump. Um, and what is the cure? <laughs> what is the cure? And so you'll, he doesn't say you'll be liable to the Gehenna of the garbage dump. So make sure you understand that my upcoming death is a sufficient penalty to buy off my father's wrath. That's not the solution. The solution is, like it always is in the prophets, change your ways. So what do you do? Go back and reconcile with your brother or sister before you bring stuff to the temple. Reconcile. You'll be liable to judgment if you run around name-calling. The solution to avoid judgment? Reconcile. It's not rocket science. Right? Change your ways, bring healing, so you won't go to the garbage dump. All right, let's look at one more. Luke 12. Here we go again. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into... Gehenna, yes, I tell you, fear him. Ooh, okay, here we go. Now, this is, start, this, this is a trickier one, right? Because it certainly sounds like we're talking about ripping soul and body apart, right? 
So don't worry, he's, he's, this is Luke. This is in the Gospel of Luke, so Jesus warning his followers, you know, essentially, don't run, hide from, per, don't, don't be afraid of the persecutors. They can kill your body, that's all they can do. Fear him who has authority to throw you into Gehenna, into the garbage dump. And there's other passages where Jesus says, him, the one who can kill soul and body in Gehenna, right? But it's still Gehenna. He's still using the word for the garbage dump. Now, if you really want to believe in a literal separate space called hell, you would say, well, yeah, Gehenna's the word for hell. But the truth is there were words that Jesus could have used for hell. He could have called it Hades. He could have called it Tartarus, he, you know. Um, and there are a couple places where Hades is used. Um, of course, if you get into Greek myth, Hades had good parts and bad parts. So going to Hades wasn't necessarily a death sentence. You could go to the nice part of Hades, but either way. Yes, there is a soul. The body does have a soul. Jesus does believe in a soul. We're not just, a, we're not just pure materialism. And that soul can get destroyed, right? And that soul can get raised along with that body. Uh, and who is the one who raises the body and the soul together? Well, that's God who does it. So who are you fearing? Don't fear. It doesn't say fear the Satan because Satan doesn't have the authority to send you to hell. Even in the mythology, he's just the, he's just the landlord, the property manager. God is the one who has the authority, right? So who should you be afraid of when you're sitting and talking about, you know, uh, how, how, what I should or shouldn't do as a believer? It's the Lord God who's the one that I gotta, be, I gotta think about. Because he has the authority, not just over uh, today, but over a resurrection. And that God has the ability to, to destroy and on the flip side, to heal your soul. So your deeper part of yourself. So I, I do really believe that Jesus really believed in a soul, that we were more than just material, that there's a spiritual part of ourselves, that that part is in connection with God, but it isn't a disembodied soul. That's Plato, the Greek philosopher, um, you know, where the soul goes from body to body to body year after year, uh, or generation after generation. That's not a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is much more linear. You live body and soul together, you die, and then you're raised. And you're raised body and soul, and the Apostle Paul will, will say that. Again, maybe for a future time. But why did Jesus not run around telling people, you are going to hell? Because to a large extent, I believe that wasn't how he understood God's judgment. And secondly... I do believe also, it doesn't really work. If somebody isn't already afraid of hell, trying to scare them with hell doesn't work. You could scream at Ricky Gervais all the live long day and his smug, cocky little mouth is just gonna sit there and smile and laugh at you. He doesn't fear hell now. It doesn't matter how bad you try to paint it, he ain't gonna fear it. And the truth is, I don't think any of us even come to faith by fear of hell. We come to faith because most of the time we either grew up with it and so throughout, throughout our lives and throughout our youth we've come to know and experience the love of God in a positive way and that's what we want to keep carrying on or we go through some sort of something in our life, a crisis or something happens to us that causes us to rethink 
And then what do we, but what do we experience in that moment? It's not judgment, it's grace. And it's the experience of grace that turns us around. Hell is more often than not used as a tool by believers to threaten other believers into compliance. Or it's used as a judgment nowadays by fundamentalist Christians to claim that uh, liberal Protestants have watered down the gospel and we're all really closet universalists underneath it all because we're, we're embarrassed by the notion of hell. And I would argue, no, we're just actually looking at the Bible and not at Dante's Inferno. Um, and so hell doesn't really bring people to faith. You can't scare people into faith. Um, but you can love people into faith. And when you look at how Jesus goes around, the judgments are almost all, like the prophets. They're applied usually to the rich and the powerful. It's the high priests, the Romans, you know, the religious hypocrites. They're the ones that get the judgment. If you're, the, if you're the poor, the needy, the masses, what Jesus brings them is healing, hope, blessings. And, the, and, and so that's Jesus' understanding. He didn't come to threaten people with hell, you know. And he didn't come because his sole purpose was to make sure that he could buy off daddy's anger so people didn't go to hell. His purpose was, like the prophets, to give hope, to give warning, to help turn people around. Yes, that gets you killed. Most of the prophets, according to Jewish tradition, did get killed for what they did. Um, and so Jesus' death has a lot of meanings in a lot of different ways. I just have a hard time, and I don't preach, that the real meaning was just to say rescue souls from a separate plane of existence. So again, check out Stuart McDonald's videos. It's called The S Course. He can walk you through some of the Dante's Inferno and some of the history on that stuff. But these are just kind of my thoughts on it and why I don't ever uh, really preach. As somebody said that to me. I said, Lars, you know, I don't really hear you talking about sin and forgiveness. I'm like, well, I talk about sin and forgiveness, but I don't talk about it in those exchange terms. Um, and, uh, and I find that the word sin uh, is another one of those incredibly loaded terms um, there's other ways to talk about ethics uh, than using that term, which I do sometimes anyways. Uh, but so, just my thoughts for today. I don't know what we'll do next week. I'll try to find some, I'll come up with something else that uh, I think that Jesus didn't say and why he didn't say it and why I think it matters. Uh, but thanks for tuning in. Probably got a little bit long today. Um, but I should be back next Thursday as always. And um, check us out. We're still going here on Sundays, 830, 1030. Um, so feel free, tune in or join us. So God bless. Have a great day.